Thanks, Cornwall Church, for joining us online. I miss you guys so much. I, I can't even tell you how badly I miss seeing you. And occasionally when I might run into some of you at a grocery store, at a drive-thru, what have you, it is so great. I, I just, I want to hug you. I won't, but I just miss you so much. We're going to continue on in our series out of Psalm 23. I'm going to take you back in 1970, uh, yes, 50 years ago, my family uh, moved from Ruston, Louisiana to Vancouver, Washington. My dad was uh, going to be the pastor of the Vancouver uh, First Church of God there. So we moved to Vancouver, Washington, and we became a part of this, this church, new church family for us, and great, great folks in this church. And there were uh, some of these like stalwart saints, these uh, pillars of the assembly. And one of the couples, one of the families that was just kind of like the pillar of this church were the Amundsons, uh, Vern and Blythe Amundsen. They had some kids. Uh, they were a bit older than, than our family. And, um, and Vern worked for the phone company, but, but he lived north of town on 80 acres. And, uh, and I have great memories of going out to Vernon Blythe's. They kind of adopted us. They, we would have dinner out there. We would, had bonfires out there. We shot BB guns out there. We sighted in later in life. We sighted in rifles. But we would go out to this property north of town, which uh, today I think is a part of the, the Sunlight Express Amphitheater, if you're familiar with that, that venue there in Vancouver. But we'd go out there. In fact, I have a picture from 1970. Uh, my brother and my sister and I, part of this uh, 80 acres. Now, we weren't really trying to reenact the Abbey Road uh, Beatles album cover, but it kind of looks that way. But we were out there, and this was in our first year in Vancouver. And uh, in, in the year, in the spring, when the sheep... Uh, did their lambing or gave birth to lambs, we went out there. In fact, we have this picture of us holding these, these baby sheep, and it was just a great thing for us uh, to be a part of that. So I actually have quite a bit of experience as a shepherd. Two years into our uh, stay in Vancouver in the summer of 1972, and the reason I remember that is because the Summer Olympics were happening and Mark Spitz was racking up medals in swimming like nobody's business until Michael Phelps. But in the summer of 92, or 72, my dad took the three kids out and we decided, asked Vern, we decided to camp on the back 40 acres of his property. Mom didn't want to stay in the tent, so she stayed at home. But we parked out there and, and camped out in the middle of this field, out in this acreage. And, uh, and my dad had this 1963 Volkswagen Bug. I was uh, nine years old, and it's the first time that I remember him allowing me to steer. I mean, we're out in this big field, and he would drive it and, and do the, the clutch and all that, but I would steer. Well, we got a little bit bored the second day we were out there. So we all loaded up in dad's Volkswagen and we went out to one of the pastures where these sheep were. And dad, I always think of dad as being old. I have to remember at the time, he was only 37 years old. So he gets us in the Volkswagen and we go out chasing these sheep and herding the sheep with the Volkswagen. You've heard of PTSD. This was PVSD, post Volkswagen sheep disorder. I mean, these sheep were terrified. Now we, we as a fan, we never told Vern, God rest his soul, hope, hope he doesn't know. But we would go chasing these sheep. Now when we look at the shepherd, the good shepherd and the shepherd in Psalm 23, he's not out chasing sheep, he's leading sheep. He's leading them beside the still waters. He's leading them in the right paths. He's leading them even through the treacherous valley of the shadow of death. He's leading them to a better future. He's leading them to a better life. And David writes this psalm, and he has experience as a shepherd. But as you well know, David wasn't just a shepherd. 
David was a king as well. In fact, in another psalm that David didn't write, it was a psalm of Asaph, it says this. He chose, talking about God, Yahweh, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. That God takes this David and he takes him from this lowly spot, from the sheep pens, and makes him the king pen. Takes him from the lowest position to the highest position. And David now, he writes, and he knows what it is to be a shepherd, and he knows what it is to be a good shepherd. And he thinks about the way he led his flock. He thinks about the way he cared for the sheep. He thinks about the way he shepherded them when he was their shepherd. And he also thinks about the way that he led his people and how he cared for his people and how he shepherded Israel as their king. And what we find is that David has this experience as a shepherd and this experience as a king, but when he writes Psalm 23, he writes from the perspective of the sheep. Again, back where we first started, when it says, the Lord is my shepherd. And it's those five words that the rest of the psalm is about, this Yahweh that is his shepherd. Now, I, I wonder, I wonder if all throughout his teenage years as a shepherd, I, I wonder if his, in his early 20s and, and 30s as, as a warrior, I, I wonder if in his years as king, all of the experiences came into being a part of this psalm. I kind of wonder and maybe suspect that Psalm 23 was written later in life, and we can discuss that later. You can disagree with me, but I can, I can tell you why I think that at a different time. But I wonder if there were these times throughout his life when he just makes these connections, this, the, the imagery, the analogy, that, that there are these times when as a shepherd and, and as a king and, and in his relationship with God, he has these, this if-then realization that if, if I shepherded this way, if I cared for my sheep like this, if I led them like this, and the Lord is my shepherd, then then he must care for me and he must lead me and he must shepherd me far better than I did. And, and if as a king, I, I led my people and I cared for my people and I shepherded my people this way as a king, then now the almighty king, no doubt he leads and cares and shepherds me and us even better than I ever could. And so here he is, a shepherd, a king, a sheep, and one who is under a king. Now today what I want to do, and I don't know if this will work out real well, it's not technically mixing metaphors, because I think when people mix metaphors, they don't realize they do it, they're just a, a mess. I want to blur lines, and so my hope is that as we blur lines in these different roles, that at the end it all comes together like a tapestry. Now granted, it might look like a Picasso, but I'm, I'm going to try this thing. So there will be times, and I may not necessarily even say, well, we're shifting from this to this, that we're going to look at David from the perspective of David being a shepherd. And there we're going to be looking at some times from him being a king, and times when he's under the great shepherd, and times when he's under a king, and times when he's under the king almighty. And my hope is that, well, first of all, that I don't confuse you, but my hope is that we don't just have a greater view and a, and a fuller view of Psalm 23, 
But in the midst of this blurred roles of David, I hope that we can see ourselves and how it applies to us all the way through. All right, so if you've been memorizing Psalm 23, uh, we're gonna do part of it together so you can uh, say it with me. We'll say it uh, rather slowly. So if you're eager and get out and ahead of us, that's, that's, that's great. Say this with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me, he makes me lie down, sorry, in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Stop, stop, stop. Because as you remember last week, this is where he makes a dramatic change. This is where he goes from talking about the shepherd to experiencing the shepherd. I will fear no evil for you are with me. And that's where we left off last week. And today we're going to pick up at the end of verse four and go through verse five where it says this. And again, he's saying yours, not, not just his, but you know, this God, but your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now I'll say this right up front. And I know I went a bit long last week. I'm going to work really hard to keep it under 40 minutes today. This could truly be four different sermons. This, each phrase, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, could be a sermon on its own right. You're, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup. This could be four sermons. But we're going to try to get through this in, a, in about a half hour or so and look at these different things. One other little observation is you see that he points to, to his shepherd. You do this for me. You do this in my presence with my enemies. You do this, my head. And just this relationship of you and me. So let's start off with this. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. For most of I mean, I've, I've known this, this psalm really since a child in Louisiana. The whole rod and staff comforting me is something I always struggled with. Yeah, I memorized it. Yeah, I could kind of talk about it. But I never understood it because to me, the rod and the staff, the way I understood it, was for correction. It was for punishment. And while it's true, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and it's great because he cares that much about us, that didn't seem very comforting to me. And something happened about 10 years ago that just like opened this up for me in a big way. Bear with me as I give you the back story. Uh, my parents in 1999 moved to Babati, Tanzania, East Africa to spend a year on the mission field. And while they were there, my dad would, would preach in uh, local villages and, and villages throughout Tanzania. My mom worked with Children of Promise, which was a child sponsorship program over there. There was the Aldergate School, which was an, a, a accredited and, and widely recommended throughout the country, this private school. And there was the Babati Bible School, where they were training uh, young uh, pastors uh, to be pastors in these villages. Well, they spent the year out there, and then they came home. And their impact was really uh, quite significant. And as, as the, the, uh, the ministry continued to grow there under Don and Carolyn Armstrong and later Ben and Kelly Schuler, the, the school, this Aldergate school, began to grow and the, um, 
the, the fame of it in, in the country of Tanzania. I mean, the president of the country came to visit the school. That it became the number one school to, if you could afford to send your children to, this was the school to go to. So it continued to grow. And because these kids were coming from all over the country, they had to live there. So in 2009... Uh, there was a brand new dormitory that had been built and they were gonna dedicate it in my mom and dad's honor. Since my dad had already passed away, they asked my mom if she would come out for the dedication. She said, I will. She didn't want to travel alone. And she asked us kids, listen, if you guys want to go, I'll pay your way. I love to travel. She's buying the ticket. I'm there. Uh, my, my sister couldn't go, but my brother and I did. So we went out to uh, Babati, to Aldergate, Aldersgate School, and there was this, this uh, dormitory that they had built for, for uh, some of the students, a beautiful, beautiful country in Tanzania. And as we got there, um, there was going to be this big ceremony, and we, sure enough, we were out there and planted some trees and did the ribbon cutting, and then they had this plaque that was made. Here's my mom with the plaque, the Marvel Dormitory, and kind of talks about all of that. After the big cutting of the ribbon, the planting of the trees, the revelation of the plaque, we went in and had this dinner, and then there was an ongoing ceremony. In the middle of that ceremony, they stopped, and they made my brother and I honorary Maasai warriors. Here's a picture of this, this deal. So they, they gave us, and I have it right here, the traditional Maasai robes, and they made it so... <laughs> on my resume, I do put Maasai warrior. I, I wish they would have made me like an East African runner. That would have been cool. I would have been much faster. So we get this. We get these robes. And then they give us these things. This is called a rungu. Go, go ahead in your living room. Say that. Rungu. Rungu. Every Maasai warrior, every Maasai herdsman, every Maasai man has a rungu. And this is a, a, a device that's used in warfare. It's a weapon. It's used in hunting, it's used in, in their being uh, herdsmen, and they become extremely accurate throwing the rungu. And as I was receiving this and learning more about the rungu and what it was used for, suddenly now, this whole idea about David being a warrior, David being a herdsman, David being a shepherd, David having a rod, it, it just opened up like, oh, I get it now. now. David is best known for the slingshot, you know, that whole thing. But remember, before he went out to face Goliath with the slingshot, he told King Saul about what he could do with a rod, with a, a weapon like this. It says this, but David said to Saul, your servant, talking about himself, has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off his sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Now, you don't strike a bear or a lion with a slingshot. They're not going to do a whole lot. And you're probably not going to do it with your bare hands. But if you have some sort of a club, some sort of a rod that you can do this as a weapon, you use that, and then you kill the bear, you kill the lion, you scare them off, you get the sheep back. All of a sudden I began to understand maybe for the first time that when it says your rod and your staff, they comfort me, maybe it wasn't so much about punishment, but it was about protection. And that if my shepherd was really, really good with the rod, then that brings me great confidence and great comfort. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who said, speak softly, but carry a big stick. And we, we have a God 
who will protect us against our enemy. It says our rod and our staff. Now, this, this uh, was given to me by a Maasai warrior. This was taken out of the children's ministry prop closet. Uh, this one's a whole lot better, but you've used one of these in your Christmas pageant when you were the shepherds or whatever. So the whole idea of a crook and the idea of a shepherd, of a, of a staff is that if a sheep got caught in the thicket, the staff could come alongside and help rescue the sheep out of that thicket. If a sheep got over a, a, bit, a ledge where it was, he is endangered, he could come alongside and help rescue that. If a sheep got a little bit out of line, he could come alongside and, and get him back in line and get him back on the right path, uh, as we've heard about in Brian's sermon about on the, the path of righteousness, that right path. So when we start thinking about our lives, that when we're confronted with an enemy, because the Bible says in First Peter that our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion roaming around looking for someone to devour. To know that we have a good shepherd who carries a big stick can bring us incredible comfort. And to know that when we get off track and when we get stuck, when we're out of bounds, that our good shepherd has his word and his Holy Spirit to come alongside and rescue us. And no matter how frightening it is with our enemy, the roaring lion, in 1 John chapter 4, we read this, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Our good and great shepherd, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. All right, well, we could keep going on that, but we're gonna stop, we're, we're gonna move, move along on this whole thing. Uh, the, the whole idea is this, with David's if-then realization. If, if I as a shepherd knew how to use my rod and my staff to comfort my sheep, and if I as a king knew how to use my scepter and my knowledge and my wisdom and my justice to rule my people, if then, then my shepherd and my king, he is protecting and directing me. And that's for all of us, that our God is protecting and directing me. All right, I could keep going on that first. You don't know how long, but I'm not going to. I'm gonna move on. So he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. Now, in week two, Pastor Kip talked about how you make me lie down in green pastures, the idea of green pastures being a table for the sheep, uh, even the idea of a, of a table land, a higher plateau, a, a mesa to take the sheep to graze on. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. I'd rather spend our time talking about the whole concept of David as a king, because David, even as a shepherd boy, knew what it was like to be at the table of the king, and later he knew what it was like to be at the table as the king. And what does that look like? To be at this table with the king. Some of you remember uh, years ago, a chain of restaurants called the King's Table. There was also the King's Table and the Royal Fork. I think they were the same family group. The King's Table was a restaurant where you pay a certain amount of money and then you can just eat. And uh, <laughs> So I, I didn't even know if the King's Table even existed. So I got online to, to look uh, at their website. And, and I want to quote from the website of the Royal Fork and the King's Table what they said about the King's Table. Great value for budget-minded diners looking to eat large quantities of a myriad of foods. I thought that was telling that they would say this about their own restaurant. 
did you notice what is conspicuously missing from that description? Anything about quality at all. It's just, hey, value conscience folks, you wanna consume a lot, this is the place. Big, massive, bulk food for a low amount of money. I can tell you, when I was in college, my friends and I, we loved the king's table. We loved because we could just eat and eat. It was this whole idea of there's this unlimited, abundant amount of food. This, this nonstop indulgence, even gluttony. Now, in our, in our American society, quite frankly, that is really quite obese, where we have food aplenty, you go to the grocery store and there's all kinds of food, we don't see this as such a big deal. And we used to go on cruises or at casinos, what have you, and, and go to these buffets. In those days, most people barely made it by year to year, harvest to harvest, you know, herd to herd, and it was only the kings that would have this kind of abundance. But it wasn't just this quality and not even really just the quantity that doesn't, isn't referred to in there. But there was an honor and there was a privilege to sit at the table of the king. So David, when he was a young boy, through his teenage years and all through his 20s, Saul was the king. And Saul was not a godly king. He was not a good king. He was an evil king, which a little side note, and I probably shouldn't even go here, that David decides that he will not say or do anything against the king, against the position that God has, has appointed. Can I just say one thing and then I'll get off my soapbox? As Christians, as brothers and sisters who've been redeemed by the unlimited grace of God, as fallen people who've been brought into the kingdom of God and into the family as sons and daughters of the Most High, we are called to pray for our leaders. It does not matter if it's the president, if it's the speaker of the house, if it's the Senate minority leader, if it's the Senate majority leader. It doesn't matter if it's the governor. It doesn't matter if it's the mayor. We are called to pray for our leaders. Whether you voted for them or not, whether you agree with them or not, whether they are godly or evil, we are called to pray for our leaders. Soapbox over. All right. So David is under the rule of this evil, ungodly king. And not only that, but in his 20s, not only is Saul his king, suddenly Saul becomes his boss. I referenced this briefly last week. Saul becomes his boss. And this boss is psychotic. He's bipolar. And as far as David is concerned, Saul is threatened by him. He's jealous of him. He fears him. And while David is trying to serve him and be loyal to him, Saul has these outbursts. We read about this in 1 Samuel. It says, and from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And while David was playing the harp, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him not once. This happened twice. And can I just say, Ron and Sarah, I am so grateful that Saul doesn't sit on the front row when you're leading worship because if it's a song he doesn't like, he's gonna let you know. I, I'm thankful that Saul is not one of our elders because when these sermons go long or they flop, you know, they're throwing spears at me. I mean, there had to have been some hazard pay for David. He's in there serving the king. He's playing for the, sing, the king. He's trying to help the king out and the king just throws this spear at him. And it goes on, it says this. And Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Follow this. Saul is the evil king of the nation and David is under his leadership. 
Saul is a psychotic bipolar boss who is over David. And the irony is this, is that David's success lands him Saul's daughter's hand in marriage, which is just like adding insult to injury for Saul. So now, not only is he this wicked king, this horrible boss, he is his father-in-law and Jonathan, Saul's son, is best friends with David and Michael, especially, is his wife. While they, they love their dad, they're loyal to David. And so Saul just can't have this. He decides, David is my enemy. Yes, he's my son-in-law, but he is my enemy. Now, no comments about in-laws on the chat room. Please, none, none. Don't do it. It's not worth it. So here's David, but he's now a part of this family, and he's invited to the king's table. And in one season, when things had escalated, and, and David could see the handwriting on the wall, knew that Saul was upset, he decided, I am not going to go to dinner anymore. And he told Jonathan, if your dad doesn't say anything about it, then everything's cool. He doesn't even know that I'm not there. But if he makes a point of pointing out that I'm not there, it's because he's looking for me. And this is what we read. But the next day, David's place was empty again. This was the second day that he hadn't been at dinner. Then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? You know, the table. That's supposed to be a joy-filled, life-giving environment where there's conversation and laughter and discussion and food. For David to sit at this king's table, man, that was like fearful. and could even be fatal. David understands what it's like to be at a table in the presence of his enemy. I hate to leave you hanging there, but I want to move on because Saul and Jonathan both die in battle. And so David assumes the throne. And years later, down the road, years later, David is king. And probably in one of those con contemplative times when he's looking back with great fond memories and nostalgia and, and some heartache, thinking about his father-in-law, but his, bro his, his brother-in-law, his best friend, Jonathan. And he makes this statement, is, is there anyone left in Saul's household that I can show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan, not for Saul, but for Jonathan. And there's a man named Ziba, and Ziba says, there is, uh, there is Jonathan had a son, and, and he's still alive. Now, here's the deal about Jonathan's son. He lives in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar literally means no pasture, can also be translated wasteland. Not a great place to hang out. Kind of like that old CCR song, stuck in Lodi again, stuck in Lodabar again. Last place I want to be, I'm stuck here. Not only is he, in this, is he living in this wasteland, but he's living in fear as a fugitive because as a part of the former dynasty, he doesn't want David to even know that he's existing. And in addition to that, because of a horrible accident that happened when he was a child, he's crippled in both feet. And since they don't have some kind of disability act, that renders him basically useless to society in their culture. And so when word comes, and his name, by the way, is Mephibosheth, which never fits on the license plate of the back of your little bicycle. So when they come to him and say, hey, 
King David wants to see you. He says, he says, literally, what does he want? A dead dog like me. I mean, he recognizes, I live in a wasteland. I'm crippled. I'm of his enemy's family. What does he want? A dead dog like me. That's like a, a double negative. That's not just, just dead, but it's a dead dog. And in that culture, that was like the low. That'd be like us calling, what does he want with a decaying possum like me? I mean, he's just the lowest of the low. But David calls him and brings him to Jerusalem And look at this beautiful picture. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. Now here's this man, this orphan, this disabled orphan who's living in Lodabar, the wasteland. And he is brought to the very table in Jerusalem, the city of peace, to eat with honor in the abundance of the king's table. And I just wonder if David has one of these if-then, if he remembers what it was like to be at the king's table when the king was wicked and evil. And if he knows, while he's not perfect, he wants to do the right thing, what it's like to sit at his table as the king, like Mephibosheth is, as a son, if then, then there's always a place at his table. This king almighty always has a place at his table, even when he comes in his brokenness, even when he comes in his failure, even when he comes in his miserable existence, the king has a place at the table for him. You can't buy a ticket to that table. There's not enough money to buy your way onto a seat on that table. It's only because of the unbelievable love of the king. In fact, David would write about this in a psalm when he says, how priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. That's kind of last week's sermon. Look at this. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. And for with you is the fountain of life. And in your light, we see light. To know that, man, there is room at the table for me. This whole picture of being at the table of the king, you find it throughout scripture. I mean, David's son Solomon wrote about it. And some of us grew up singing about it. You know, I am my beloved's and he is mine. His banner over me is love. You remember that song? You know, they brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. That came out of the Song of Solomon. Why they were teaching little kids to sing songs out of the Song of Solomon, I don't know. Good thing we didn't read the book, but that's that song. Or how about this one? And, and I don't have time to go into the, to the backstory on this one. You can read this on your own. The Bible is a good book for you to read. That's a great thing. There's a, a king, his name is Je- Jehoiakim or Yehoiachim, Jehoiakim, and um, won't get into the story, but he's been thrown into prison. After who knows how long, the latter years of his life are summarized in this beautiful verse that says this, so Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. What a picture of redemption. He takes off those prison clothes he no longer has to, to beg for a little extra piece of bread in this prison, in, in, the, in the, uh, the food of the prison. Now he comes with royalty to the king's table and he eats with all that he can, anything he wants. Or how about when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son? This disgraceful, uh, 
rebellious, unclean, physically, morally, spiritually, financially bankrupt embarrassment of a son comes back stinking and smelling and embarrassing his father. And what does the father do? He runs and says, kill the fatted calf, get the best robe, get the brand new sandals, get the ring. It's bring him to my table. There's a place at the table for me. How about when Jesus sits down the night before he's crucified with his disciples, knowing full well that they were either going to betray him deny him, and they would all abandon him. And yet he said, you don't know how I have longed to eat at this table with you. And there he tells how his body will be broken and his blood will be shed so that they could be brought into a right relationship with the heavenly father. Or how about after the resurrection, when he's on the coastline there at the Sea of Galilee, and Peter, who is filled with self-loathing because he's denied the Lord three times, Jesus invites him to his table and says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep. You know, I could go on and on and on, but here's the beauty of this. That theme happens throughout scripture and that theme has happened over and over and over again in human history because it's your story and it's my story that the king invites us to leave Lodabar and come to the city of peace, to leave the wasteland and come to where there are these rivers of life. The king of all eternity tells us, leave your prison, take off your prison clothes, come and sit at my table. Leave the far country, leave the pigsty and the the corn husks and and the pods that the pigs eat, come eat at my table, eat of the fatted calf, sit around my table. And know the life that I offer. Come, be a part of my family. And the whole time, the presence of our enemy, our adversary, our accuser is saying, she can't sit at your table, God. He's got no business at your table, God. Do you know what they did? Do you know where she's been? Do you know what his motives are? Do you know what they thought? Do you know what they said? Do you know what they did? Do you know? And God says, listen. She's my daughter. She belongs at my table. He's my son. He will sit at my table. That's our story. Oh, yeah! Can I get an amen? I mean, turn to someone in your living room and say, I'm at the table, baby! Hit the like button. Hit that star down there. Type in amen. That is so amazing because that's our story. What an unbelievable truth. What an unbelievable God. How amazing is that? Okay, we, we, gotta keep, we gotta keep going. We gotta keep going. Okay, so you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. And then he says, you anoint my head with oil. And we can, again, we could go into the whole sheep shepherd thing. I, I'd say I'll refer you back to week, chap, uh, week number two when Pastor Kip preached on verse number two. Uh, There's a great book uh, by Philip Keller, not Timothy Keller, Philip Keller, uh, called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, talks a lot about this whole idea of anointing the sheep's head with oil, how it protects the rams when they butt heads, how they glance off each other, how it helps with things like, like, um, oh, you know, bugs in their ears and and serpents in their nose, and I mean, you can read it on your own, and and how it brings healing. I I don't want to talk about that as much. That's all a beautiful part of it. 
But real quickly, I want us to take a, a full circle back to where we started five weeks ago. Five weeks ago, I showed you a picture of a young boy I met two and a half months ago. A little boy in Bethlehem, little shepherd boy with his sheep, probably 14 years of age or so, give or take. And the reason I introduced you to him is because this is about the age that David was when he emerges onto the narrative of scripture. He's this young boy. Remind you, Samuel has been told by God, go anoint the next king of Israel. Go to Bethlehem, go to the house of Jesse, invite him to uh, the sacrifice. And this is, we read this, it says, invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Now, I'm going to go through this quick because we already, we already did this in week one. So he goes there, and, and then it says this. So he asked Jesse, he, you know, the sons come through. No, he's not it. He's not it. He's not it. Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, the runt, the one out in the lowly pasture job. Jesse answered. But he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him, we will not sit down until he arrives. They go, they get David, they bring him in, and then we read this. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. I don't believe that thought, that scene, that experience ever left David's memory. He thought about that over and over again. It would be at least 15 years before he would actually be the king. How many times he thought, no, 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 Samuel, Samuel anointed me during those waiting years. And even during his being the king, when there were these questions and these times of doubt and times of defeat and times of his own moral failure, no, 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 Samuel anointed me as, as king. And all throughout his, his life, in the, some of the deepest, darkest valleys and some of the hardships and some of the critics and some of the, the opposition that he faced, no, no, he would come back to this again and again and again. If Samuel anointed me, if this is what God had done for me, then he has chosen me for his purpose. He has anointed me for his purpose. I am chosen for his purpose, for his royal purpose. God chose me. It's for God's purpose. And it's all for God's glory. Now at the risk of sounding like a broken record, yet again, this is our story. That God has chosen us. And not, not just to be a part of his family, but for his purposes. And I think sometimes the church has this inferiority complex of, well, no, I'm just gonna squeak in by the grace of God. He can't use me. God has anointed you and me for his purposes, for his glory. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, yes, by grace we're saved through faith, all that, but we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he's created in advance for us to do, prepared in advance for us to do, and not just little menial tasks. He says, you are a royal priesthood in my family. We've been anointed to do God's work, to do his bidding, to fulfill his purposes for his glory. 2 Corinthians chapter one says this, now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is, what is to come. He anointed us as a part of his royal priesthood for his purposes. Now back to David. David, I'm sure, is going through all of this. 
And he's just, he's just like, I can't even believe it. Because his rod and his staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He, he anoints my head with oil. And my only response is, my cup overflows. I, I just can't even contain it. It just overflows. As I said in the very beginning, it's what you do for me. What you do for me. What you do for me. I am just amazed by it. It all starts with, the Lord is my shepherd. Everything else is, is determined that. And if the Lord is my shepherd, then your rod and your staff, it comforts me. Like you're protecting, you're, you're guiding and directing me. And if the Lord is my shepherd, then you prepare a table for me, even in the presence of my enemy. And there's always a place at the table for me. And if the Lord is my shepherd, then you anoint my head with oil for your purposes. And I just overflow. And if we could kind of misquote it just a little bit, if the Lord is my shepherd, then that's all I want because of the life that he gives to me. This life that is abundant that he just pours out over and over. A thousand years later, Jesus would take up this whole picture of being the good shepherd in John chapter 10. The enemy of our soul, the roaring lion, the accuser, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. My cup overflows. Have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, he says. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If this is the truth, then he calls me to a life of abundance, a life of plenty, a life of goodness in step with my shepherd. It's always overflowing, overflowing in mercy, overflowing in grace, overflowing in love, overflowing in his goodness. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask. It's always the, the fatted calf. It's always the best robe. It's always the new sandals. He just overflowing, my cup overflows. Look at this in Jude, verse one and two. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. My cup overflows. This is what he says. I want you to understand mercy so much you can't even contain it and peace and joy and love. I want you to have this in abundance that it would just pour out. Or in Romans where it says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may, here it is, overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at this. Look at this in our day. Because some of you are overflowing with stress and fear and worry and anxiety. And he says, and I want you to know the shepherd so that you overflow with hope and peace and joy. In 1 Peter it says, inexpressible and glorious joy. That's how we are to live. What if what if we were convinced, this wasn't just some words that David wrote 3,000 years ago, but this is the reality that we can live in today. What if this wasn't some novel concept? What if this was the normal way we live every single day? 